Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, May the 16th. Uh, 2022, as always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, from my familiar office. Familiarity is a funny thing. It's one of the things we're going to be talking about today. Um, Over the weekend, I did an interview with the historian Glenda Gilmore. She has an interesting new book out about the African-American artist Ramare Bearden. Uh, The book uh, features on its cover um, a, a wonderful piece of art from 1978, uh, called um, Early Carolina Morning. And what really struck me about this painting was its familiarity because it actually sits on my mantelpiece at home quite coincidentally. So it's rather strange to interview someone about a work and a work of art that I was so intimately familiar with. We are talking in a different kind of way about familiarity today. Um my guest on the show, John uh, Mualam, uh, is a very distinguished American essayist, journalist, writer, commentator. He had a wonderful piece which caught my attention, New York Times Magazine last week, about uh, entitled The Matador uh, and Me, Coming to Terms with My Famously Ugly Lookalike. Rather than seeing a familiar uh, painting, uh, John... Uh, found a man who looked identical to him, um, and he writes about that, a man who is actually quite famous, a, 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 a Spanish uh, bullfighter called Manoletto. And uh, this is one of the essays and the title essay in a new collection by John called Serious Face. Um, I'm curious, John, he's joining us from Bainbridge Island, where he lives, uh, just near Seattle. John, what was it like finding someone who looked so similar to you? Well, it was pretty, pretty freaky. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think we all kind of walk around, you know, because we have uh, brains that want to make uh, patterns out of everything. You know, we, I think a lot of us walk around thinking that we see resemblances between people, but I think it's a lot rarer that we, um, you actually see yourself in, in somebody else's face. So I was pretty shocked when some friends had seen a photograph of Manolete on a wall of a restaurant in Spain and sent it to me. It was really the first time uh, that I actually kind of jolted back and, and thought, yeah, you know, it does, it does actually look like me. I thought you were rather unkind to Manolete and also yourself, you say, or you write, Manolete was ugly. I don't think he's ugly. I think he's very distinguished looking. And I guess that suggests you're also quite distinguished looking. I mean, it's an unusual face, but it's anything but ugly. How would you define, why would you suggest that he was ugly? Well, in that, in that uh, instance, I guess I'm, I'm really just being a, a journalist more than, a, than expressing an opinion. I mean, uh, what happened was, is after I figured out who this matador in the photograph was, uh, I, got a, I bought a little biography of him. And it was just overwhelmingly clear. I mean, it was almost like a satire. Uh, this this book went through great pains to uh, repeat basically everything that had ever been said about Manoletti's face and how how ugly it reportedly was. So that just seemed to be the consensus at the time. I was just stating a fact that uh, that he seemed to be ugly. Dude, I think he was ugly. No, I mean, I thought he looked like me. I don't walk around thinking that I'm that I'm ugly. So I was kind of amused by the whole thing. 
but um but yeah people people yeah here's, a, here's uh, for people watching yeah. uh, rather than just listening here is a statue of uh uh, uh manolete looking anything uh but ugly tell me about this guy's a remarkable life short yeah. life but remarkable yeah well i'll say you know the first the first sentence i i read uh in that book it said he has a face that's as dreary as a third class funeral on a rainy day so it just sort of gives you some sense of the the poeticness of the insults that were being hurled at him but yeah manolete was it's really a, i'm sure for you john given what i've read about you and your work it kind of resonated with you uh that he has an ugly face no the, oh. <laughs> not the ugly face the uh the rainy afternoon bit. Uh, well, I think that might have a gloomy side to me. I'm not exactly sure. But yeah, Ma Manoletti was a was a sort of he was a very morose little, you know, little kid. He had grown up uh, poor without a father and uh, was very shy and, and uh, looked kind of, you know, bummed out all the time. And uh, his father and a number of his other family members had been matadors. And his mother, uh, you know, really did not want him to have any interest in bullfighting whatsoever. So hid a lot of the family heirlooms and the jackets and outfits and things from his relatives. Uh, but he did eventually get kind of sucked into the sport. You know, he he um, he began uh, fighting bulls as a teenager and became uh, someone who was you know ultimately described as like the greatest matador of all time during his day in the, in the 40s. Um, so he uh, but he always kind of did it with this. Uh, you know, kind of a morose, uh, you know, facial expression and very little uh, flair. You know, he, he looked as if he was a little bit bored or uh, maybe a little bit sad, which, uh, you know, perversely kind of drew people to him. It made it made his art of uh, bullfighting just seem a little more refined because he wasn't kind of going with the, the flash and and the more uh, balletic style that was popular at the time. But I would have thought that added to the drama, the fact that he, he was risking his life and indeed he did eventually die. He was gored by a bull. I mean, what, what, isn't that, and I'm not an expert on bullfighting, but isn't that the correct way kind of artistically of, of, of being of a bullfighter? Uh, his, uh, the Wikipedia entry on him suggests that his, um, his, his style was sober and serious and he excelled at the kill, which, um, is itself sober and a sober and serious business, the killing of bulls. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll stipulate here. I'm not an expert on on bullfighting either. I, I read quite a lot about Manolete and the sport to, in order to write that piece, but I, I really was not interested in bullfighting, you know, as a as a sport or as a as a as a spectacle. I, I do find it a little distasteful. But yeah, I think that that was um, you know the way he killed bulls was apparently a very kind of old fashioned. Um, you know, simple way of doing it. He would just, you know, go right over the the bull's shoulder, um, you know, with his sword in a way that a lot of bullfighters at the time weren't doing it anymore because it left the matador more exposed and it was more dangerous. But even that had this kind of, you know, that being his his flourish was was really like a kind of anti flourish because he was just doing it in the most workmanlike, straightforward way as possible, as if he was just trying to get it, get it done with and and move on. And yeah, I think that did have that did kind of elevate what he was doing in a weird way. Um, you know, it tinged it kind of with a kind of sadness or vulnerability that I think um, the fans at the time really responded to. And that's a lot of what I'm dealing with in this essay was this was this idea of uh, someone who's who's, um, you know, seems to be uh, excelling at something, but feels somewhat conflicted about it. And, and which should they listen to the part of themselves that that feels like they want to give it up or should they push through that and keep going? There's a lot of death in serious face, a lot of discussion of death. 
on the meaning, the imminence of death, and and and, and in your essay, the 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 um, the featured essay, Serious Face, in, in the collection, you describe his death. Tell me why it was such a a memorable, perhaps even appropriate death. Yeah, well, this was, um, you know, so I, after many years of, of fighting bulls and being at the, the most elite tier of, of bullfighting, let's say, uh, Manoletti, you know, as these things happen, sometimes the, the fans kind of began to get tired of him. You know, they, they, it, was a, it was a little boring to see him just continue to, to be the best and excel. And uh, another bullfighter known, named uh, Dominguin, who was a lot younger and, and more brash and um, you know, kind of like the bad boy of the sport, uh, had had kind of targeted Manoletta in order to climb up the ranks of bullfighting and challenged him so that he could kind of break through to that to that top tier of the of bullfighting as well. And at the time, Manoletta had already decided to retire. He was going to go through the rest of his engagements that he booked and retire at the end of that season. And he just kind of wanted he wanted out. He wanted just a quieter life and to be done with it. He was not enjoying himself at all. Uh, but because Domingan was was hounding him and uh, almost in the way like uh, pro wrestlers kind of become these, you know, kind of heels and and, uh, and and bad guys and uh, and the fans respond to that. The same thing was happening here. So suddenly Manoletti's plans to retire did not seem, you know, uh, this kind of admirable or austere uh, transcendence of the sport at the end of this you know, great career. But now it, it seemed like he was just running away and he was afraid. Um, you know that that this younger guy was uh, would have one over on him, so he agreed to a, a series of bullfights with Dominguin, and it was in the second one um, that he was gored by a, by a bull while in the ring, and uh, subsequently died later that that night. So in a way, it's um, you know getting back to what I was saying before, it it struck me as as uh, pretty pretty tragic or at least poignant, um, you know that someone who had wrestled with the decision of you know. W w whether or not he should be engaged in this at all and wanting to step away and then being dragged back, you know, that was what undid him in the end, in the end, excuse me. <clears throat> I suggested, John, there's a lot of death in, in, in your book, Serious Face. The other thing I found in the book, which there's a lot of, is sort of implicit discussion of, of luck. I guess uh, Maletta was unlucky to die. But you also had a really interesting essay on it. I never even heard of him. A guy called Jack Wayne Lorke, uh, a man who survived, uh, a baseball player who survived six brushes with death. Perhaps you might briefly talk about so-called lucky, so lucky Lor Lorke, even though he wasn't particularly keen on that term. Uh, and how you think about luck. Is it something that you have formally thought about or is it just kind of implicit in your work? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a really astute um, question. I think you're really, you are onto something. I think there's a lot of, um, I mean, death, but I would also say kind of mortality. And I think that that's really linked to the idea of luck in a, in a lot of ways. You know, I think, um, well, anyway, more specifically, yeah, Lucky Lorkey, Jack Lorkey was a, um, a minor league baseball player for the Spokane Indians. Um, and he was part of, uh, you know, in, in the minor leagues, you're sort of the, the idea is that you're you're climbing the ladder and you're going to be switching teams uh, frequently. And it was on the day that he got called up to the next league that uh, his teammates were on a road trip and uh, their bus went over the side of a mountain en route to the to the next game. And uh, I don't remember the exact number, but you know a huge proportion of the team died and everyone else was was very severely injured. 
but he had been yanked off the bus at the last minute in order to report back uh, to uh, Spokane and be shipped off uh, to San Diego, where he was supposed to be um, going to the next highest league. So that was kind of the, the what caught the media's attention at the time was this tragic accident. And it turned out that he had had many other, um, you know, brushes with death while during World War II. He had, had been taken off an airplane at the last moment, um, which then went went down. Uh, and really, what the what I was exploring uh, in his story was. You know, having met his daughter on a on a trip I took to Spokane and and talked with her about his life, was really just like how how um, almost obnoxiously simple minded the the press coverage of this man was. The fact that they were always turning him into this kind of lucky cartoon character that was skirting through life, you know, whistling as as he avoided accident after accident. When in fact, each one of those was a real trauma for him, um, and he understood that you know it was just you know, there was a kind of a darkness to luck that, that it could have just as easily been him. And that was ended up being a kind of survivor's burden that he had to carry. Yeah, that survivor's burden is something you write about in lots of interesting ways in Serious Face. You write about a young man called B.J. Miller, who lost all his limbs. Uh, he was an undergraduate at Princeton. He lost all his limbs in a very um, well, more than tragic accident. Uh, I guess he was lucky that he survived. But um, uh, and he's quite a well-known figure. There's an NPR piece, for example, about how uh, Miller, who became a doctor, discovered insights into living life and facing death after the accident. Um, everything is so arbitrary, isn't it, John? And, and that's what you seem to be making sense of, or perhaps struggling to make sense of in, in, in your series of essays? Who would have known you climb on a train and you lose all your limbs? Who would have known that you decide not to get on a bus and then that bus 45 minutes later crashes and kills everyone on board? Who would have known that the the, the bull would have gored you to death? So is, is this collection a kind of um, an attempt to get people to think about bad luck and indeed good luck and being prepared for it, the arbitrariness of things? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a, it's a really brilliant way of framing the, the book. I appreciate that because I, I think, you know, obviously those are things I think about a lot, but I don't know that I would have been able to crystallize it the way you just did. I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I, I think more than luck, it's it's maybe about arbitrariness. I mean, I think luck is, luck is um, you know, a function of arbitrariness. When things, when things feel random and, and arbitrary, then we look back on, what you know we look back on them later and, and define them in terms of good luck or bad luck but yeah i think in some ways you know we we um you know we go through life trying to assemble what happens into stories right and uh, i think that's just the way that we're wired as as human beings and when you do that you know that's a that's obviously a really helpful um you know and comforting way to to, to deal with the kind of onslaught of, of uh, stimulus and events that we're all, that we're all uh, dealt. And yet when you, when you do that, um, you tend to kind of sand down the edges of, of things. And, and when everything becomes a story, it makes, it makes it seem like it was inevitable, you know, like, of course it had to be this way because this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And I guess what a lot of what I'm doing, um, you know, is by, by telling stories is actually, I guess it's a, a perverse kind of a narrative jujitsu or something, you know, taking taking stories that seem like they make sense and uh, that they add up in a certain way and really stepping back and and looking at them 
from from a bit of um, you know a sideways point of view, and showing that actually there's all these other um, ways it it could have been. You know, all of these things went you know had to go right for it to turn out the way that it did, um, and just call attention to the fact that none of that is a is a given. I think I tend to see the world um, you know that way. I'm inclined to see it as a little more chaotic. Than, than full of order. And uh, so I guess in some ways, that's a sensibility that I'm bringing to all these stories when I go out and, and start to learn about them. Yeah, it's it's a curious sensibility because even though you're a very American writer and you write almost all your essays about America, it's an un-American sensibility. It's a sensibility that Americans aren't comfortable with. I think it's challenging and, and makes them uncomfortable, which makes your work uncomfortable and important. We're going to take a break, John, now for thir- 60 seconds. Don't die on me uh, for the next 60 seconds at least. And then we'll be back. We're talking to John uh, Mualam, the author of Serious Face, a wonderful collection of, of interesting, relevant essays about how we should and shouldn't live our lives in, in, in an age of uncertainty. We'll be back with John in 60 seconds. Don't go away. Don't die, anyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, In terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We are back with John Mualam, the author of Serious Face. John, you begin the book with a reference to a poet. I'd actually, I have to admit, I'm not a great expert on on American poetry, uh, but a a reference to a poet called Eric Trethaway, um, who who, who wrote a poem called Frost in the Fields. Um, And there is a line from that poem which really resonated with you and and you introduced at the beginning of the book as the uh, as the connection i think with all the essays and the theme uh, in serious face perhaps you might uh tell our viewers and listeners uh, that line from the trethaway poem yeah sure the line is um pretty simple it's uh, why why are we not better than we are 
And what's the significance of that line to you, John? Um, yeah, you know, I think it's, um, I think now that I've been out talking about the book a little bit, I think it's interesting that uh, people seem to interpret that in a kind of uh, moral way. You know, why are we not more moral than, than we are? And I, I think that's part of it. But, but honestly, what it, what it, what it meant to me when I read it, and I, you know, I read that that poem twenty years ago, and and I I set it up by saying, you know, it's um, for some reason this one simple little line has has stuck with me. Um, I think it's really just, you know, it's it's a lot broader than than morality. It's it's also just, you know, why are we not a little more functional than we than we are? You know, why do we why do we set out to accomplish things and sometimes fail? Why do we sometimes look like fools while we're doing it? Why do we spin around in circles, confused? You know, I think that when you when you, uh, if you think hard about your, well, if I think hard about myself, and I, I suspect this is true for a lot of people, and also when I have the privilege of going out to report, uh, you know, narrative journalism stories and get to spend time with people and pay attention to, to their stories closely, you really start to notice that, um, you know, life is a lot more complicated and, and unruly and messy than, than the stories we tell ourselves about it often. Um, you know, why is it that, uh, you know, we sometimes just can't get around to doing things that we know we should be doing, you know, whether it's like uh, simple to do list types of things, or if it's, you know, uh, you know, pursuing our life in a more meaningful way. Um, I think that there's tons of um, examples in the book where I'm, I'm chronicling uh, an instance where people are just trying to achieve something, or trying to solve a problem in a way that feels somewhat straightforward to them, but actually becomes much more complicated than, than they imagine. You know, it's funny, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. I did a little snooping around about Eric Trethaway, but he himself was the victim, if that's the right word, of a terrible tragedy. His ex-wife and his daughter were m murdered. Uh, he, he was married to an African-American, and he, uh, his first wife at least, and and she was murdered by her second husband. Um, so he himself was was the victim of, of a terrible bad luck of fate. So it, it affects everyone. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the history of. Uh, yeah, well, I am a little only because I know his his daughter Natasha is. A, yeah, it was a well known a, poet, right? Yeah, and I know she's written about it. I remember reading. Um, I, I believe she wrote a, a whole book about. Um, that tragedy, which I, I confess I haven't read, but I do remember reading an excerpt of it somewhere. So yeah, I'm just, I'm familiar very vaguely um, that that happened. Yeah. What about the, the American context? You write very much as an American. You're serious. It's not a very serious country, or perhaps it is a serious country, which is unable to come to terms with its own seriousness. Is there an element of reminding Americans of the, the seriousness of the country, of the endeavor, of their fate? And, and, and coming back to this whole issue of managing ourselves, of, of reminding people that you don't get what you deserve, that history is profoundly arbitrary. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say I have a great, you know, zealous mission to, uh, to do that, but I, I could see how that might be a consequence of, of the way that I, the way that I write. I mean, I think again, it's, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I would say certainly as a culture, we don't seem to be, we seem to be pretty in love with certainty and, and grasp at it. Um, you know, sometimes when we shouldn't, I mean, I think the pandemic's shown a lot of that, a lot of that too, you know, it's, if uh, just sort of in, in, in unwillingness to deal with the, the messiness and complexity of, 
of the predicaments we find ourselves in. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I said, it's just that's sort of just how I I'm wired to see the world. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why. You know what made me uh, uh, look at things that way. But um, but I guess I agree with you that it it doesn't seem to be. Um, it seems to be uh, a skill that that we're lacking. And I'm not even as I said that I'm not even sure I would call it a skill because I don't know that you you come up with. A, I don't know how productive it is. I don't know that you necessarily come up with um, a lot of. Um, a lot of better paths just by being able to see the gray areas in front of you, but it, it certainly um, maybe I can point them out and then someone else can can take them and and uh, and figure out what to do. What about the form of the essay? Uh, you seem very comfortable in it. As I said, you're a highly respected American essayist. A lot of people say you're one of the most talented essayists in America at the moment. I've done a number of shows with different kinds of American essayists. Elisa Gabbett, for example, I'm sure you're familiar with her work. The Unreality of Memory, and I did one um, recently with a different kind of writer, Mary Laura Philpott, who, who, who suggests that the best non-fictional writing requires the art of a fiction writer. She has a new book. She's a best-selling writer, Bombshell, a collection of essays. Do you feel that as an essayist, you need to learn or have the skills of a fiction writer? Is this a form that sort of blends fiction and non-fiction? Um. Yeah, you know, I guess I, I always have a hard time kind of talking about, you know, genres in, in that way. Um, I, you know, I don't really, I guess I don't really have a lot of strong opinions or, or um, insight into it, if only because to be perfectly honest, it's like I never really would have called myself an essayist before the, you know, Random House decided to put that word on the book. And it's it's fine with me. I mean, I've always considered myself a journalist and I do a lot of, you know, I have the opportunity to do a lot of journalism that allows me but you're an essayist. Sorry to jump in here, John. Yeah. You are an essayist in the sense that you're not just a journalist with all these disconnected pieces. They connect, maybe well, not formally, but there is a theme or themes running through them all. Well, I think I'm. I think what would probably make me an essayist, and maybe a, someone who feels a lot more connection to that label can tell me if I'm right or wrong. But I think what what would probably qualify me as an essayist is that I'm I'm you know, reporting on material and taking it in, and then I'm sort of filtering it back through my consciousness, you know, to a higher degree than than maybe other magazine journalists are, you know, as opposed to, uh, uh, whereas other people may stick closer to the perspective of other people, I guess, um, you know, it's, it's just uh, something about me is infusing the way I'm metabolizing all these stories. So I'm not, I'm not running away from the term, I just, I don't know that I can speak about it intelligently. But in terms of whether it takes the skill of a, of a fiction writer, I mean, I think, yeah, I think all to some degree, I think all good writing is uh, shares some things in common in terms of being able to, you know, recreate events and transmit emotions and ideas, right? And I think that fiction writers traditionally, you know, have the most leeway and opportunity to do those things. But the more you can bring them into, you know, nonfiction writing, I think just the, the more powerful it becomes. Yeah, I wonder, thinking out loud here, America is such a complicated country, so many contradictions, so many different places and peoples. We do so many shows with people writing a book, America is this or that, and you know, maybe there's some truth to it, but it's very hard to define America in a single fictional, perhaps, or certainly non-fictional narrative. Maybe it requires essay form. You write about lots of aspects of America. You write about the the Birdman, again, a man I didn't know about, Arlen Galbraith. That it's America. It's it's the traditional America of, um, 
I mean, not necessarily Donald Trump, people running Ponzi schemes, but certainly characters that you might not find in other cultures. And you're not unattracted to that. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, well, so Arlen was actually Canadian, but I, I think that, yeah, it is, oh, okay, it is well. sort of a quintessential, I think in terms of character traits, there is something that we feel is quintessentially American about uh, kind of ambitious, uh, you know, frauds. Um, and in his case, what what I think is actually even more, um, you know, evocative or poignant was was the fact that no one was ever really sure whether he was, uh, you know, whether he was sort of defrauding his his customers or, or defrauding himself, you know, whether he actually felt like he had a bona fide good business idea. And yeah, you might terrib- just explain who yeah, he, right, sorry. he was trying yeah. to sell. Yeah. So the Pigeon King, as he became known, was, um, you know, he, he, it was a Ponzi scheme in the sense that he was, um, he was selling, you know, things to certain people and then and shifting his assets so that he could sell to more people. But there was kind of no there there in the, in the end. And, and the thing that he was selling was pigeons. He was selling pigeons to farmers and, contracting them to breed them and then uh, buying back their offspring. Um, and basically he just bought back pigeon after pigeon. You know, he was always, he never, he never left anyone holding the bag until the very end. He, he would go around picking up people's pigeons and paying them for them and signing up new customers, uh, claiming that he had markets for all of these birds. Uh, first he said it, it was for pigeon racing. Then he said he was going to be uh, selling pigeon meat um, that it was going to be the next uh, chicken. And uh, in the end, he really he had no way to turn the, the pigeons back into money. So he uh, literally when the when the scheme collapsed, uh, uh, it was, a, I think, a 14 million dollars uh, was was out there in the form of pigeons. He owned many of them himself. He had um, there were you know, tens of thousands of of uh, pigeons in barns uh, that he uh, was contracted uh, to, to buy back from from these farmers. Um, so it was sort of a it was a. A, a, a travesty in terms that the, the, they had to be put to death, and then a lot of farmers were um, were out of their their savings too. Uh, but again, the you know what attracted me to that story was just the the kind of weird uh, uh, uncertainty at the center of it, because no you know no one really knew who who was being deluded in the end. You know, was it the people that bought into the to the scheme, or or was it the guy who was selling it? Maybe that's true of America as well. Certainly, the essays. I use that word carefully in the book about Arlen Galbraith, uh, Manaletta, uh, uh, B.J. Miller are all really interesting in their own right. But the book is bookended in a very personal way, John. As I said, you begin with the reference to Eric Trethaway in a, a line from a poem which you feel very strongly. And then you end uh, with your own experience of, of COVID. You say it wasn't tragic, but you didn't have a a great COVID like most of us. Um, and uh, so perhaps you might explain what you learned. So there, there seems to be a, a message at the, the end of the book. We uh, we did a show with um, Laura Kipnis. She has a book called uh, Love in the Time of Contagion, which is about dating and sex in COVID times. Uh, your book might have a subtitle "Life," or le- certainly the li- the last essay, "Life in the Time of Contagion." What did you learn from COVID that's helped you make sense of the world? Oh, I, oof, I you well, should ask me that. Your own yeah, sense, you your should own ask experience. me in a few in a few years. I mean, I think I think what I I think I unlearned a lot of things. You know, I think like a lot of us, um, you know, I I I learned that um, you know there are, there are not a lot of um, 
structures or certainties that that can't fail, right? There aren't a lot of guardrails that can't be blown through. Um, and uh, I think I, I really, you know, even as we were talking before, and I said, I've always kind of seen um, a certain amount of um, arbitrariness or uncertainty or, or unruliness in the world. I think I learned that it was, um, you know, that it, it really can't be ignored, I guess, you know, that, that COVID, I think, uh, hasn't really allowed us to ignore any of it anymore. Um, and I think that that, that um, you know, particularly in terms of the pandemic, I mean, I think that that puts all of us in a very uh, a morally fraught terrain. You know, it throws us into um, a situation where, uh, you know, for, for me at least, you know, trying to know uh, how to act morally and responsibly uh, in a world where there doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, agreement about that, much less, uh, you know, any kind of, um, you know, uh, sheer certainty uh, can be can be very difficult. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't I think, you know, I think a lot of us are going to be processing uh, the experience of the pandemic for a long time. And in some ways, I don't know that it's um, I think that that that's probably that those feelings are probably going to be spilling over into life, you know, even uh, when slash if the pandemic, uh, you know, more fully recedes. Well, that might be the message in serious face. It's a serious book and a serious, a serious collection of essays, but it ends in a positive way. Because you you note at the end, John, that you you have learned something from COVID as a parent, you you, you realized something at the end of the book, didn't you? I think I'd well, I'd be curious. <laughs> I think I realized a few things. What, what, I'm curious what specifically. Well, you, you, you the, 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 the last essay focuses on your appreciation for your family and your daughters in particular. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I think one thing that's that's um, that's been completely um, clear to me, and, and I've been completely certain about since the beginning of the pandemic, was that there's really no higher. You know, there's there's really no. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that if I'm if I'm paying attention to my kids, if I'm focusing on my kids, if I'm, you know, trying to just be pre I mean, it goes beyond my kids, but just that in some ways, you know, I, when when everything out in sort of the world beyond uh, the my immediate uh, uh, field of vision is is bewildering and confusing, I at least know that like you know doing a small, kind, attentive thing to someone else. Uh, you know, that's, that's worthwhile, you know, um, it may not, it's not going to solve <laughs> any of the world's problems. Um, but I, I just have a, a very kind of simple certainty that, um, that that's time well spent, that if we all can kind of, um, you know, find some, some little bit of connection, some kind of little bit of meaningful, um, you know, uh, kindness or being together, then, uh, it's at least, uh, at least you're not doing anything negative. Let's put it that way. And you're doing something positive for the, for the people around you. Well, there you have it from John Merlin. He's the closest I've ever got to talking to a famous bullfighter. Serious face. His new collection of essays is really good. They're really fascinating and beautifully written, very poetic and profound and important. Uh, finally, John, what else are you uh, reading in addition to Serious? Well, you wrote Serious Face. What, 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 what other suggestions for reading? I'm sure you, you read quite widely. Yeah, kind of a very random... Uh reader i kind of just pick things up as they as they blow by me um i actually just last night i finished a book that'll be out in uh guess in at the end of june or july uh by a friend of mine named isaac fitzgerald a book called um, dirtbag massachusetts which is a collection of essays sort of about his life and he's had a pretty um varied and remarkable life uh so i would definitely recommend that when it comes out keep an eye out for it